Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. Well, it's part two of spiritual warfare. And for some people, the devil doesn't even exist. But spiritual warfare is extremely real. Archibald Brown said this. He said the existence of the devil is so clearly taught in the Bible that to doubt it is to doubt the Bible itself. So the Bible teaches us about the devil, about Satan, the adversary. And it tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan makes war on the saints and he accuses them day and night and so we're in this war this spiritual war and if you talk to people they'll tell you it feels like we're in a war because we're under attack temptation has accelerated the pressures in the world have increased and the devil went after job the devil went after jesus the devil went after david the devil went after peter paul went after judas and he will come after us too spiritual warfare is a reality and we need to know how the devil works so that we can have wisdom in order to resist him. And I want to remind you today that Satan is not a free agent who can do what he likes and intimidate us. He is still the servant of God, even in rebellion. So we're on the winning side, but we must know his tactics and we must know how to deal with him. And while this war is going on, it's almost invisible. It's very real. It's like gravity. You don't see it, but it's at work pulling down all the time. You know, if you look back on World War II, you'll see that when Hitler invaded all the countries of Europe, resistance movements arose and the general population decided that they weren't going to allow themselves to be invaded, they were going to resist the occupational force. Their choices were limited, they could comply or die, or they could hide or resist. And what they did is they got themselves in bands together and they resisted and they formed little uh, groups through non-cooperation, propaganda, they hid, crashed uh, air pilots and there was underground movements, little armies. They even printed in various print shops a propaganda to counter what the Nazis were teaching. And, and a resistance movement can be defined like this, an organized effort by the civil population of a country to withstand the occupying power. That's what we need to be like. We need to resist the occupying force. And prominent people resisted the occupying forces during World War II. Audrey Hepburn, the Dutch actress, she did concerts in order to support the resistance. And so when there's an occupation, when there's a war, there needs to be some kind of resistance. Otherwise, the occupier comes in, dominates, and decimates. And it's exactly the same picture for the church today. If you travel around Europe, you'll see there are various resistance museums that have been opened so that people can remember that there needs to be resistance when there's unfair occupation. The big question today is this, is will the church resist the works and the temptations of the enemy or will they give in to the occupying force? And today I want to speak to you under this topic, spiritual warfare, about the power of resistance. The power of resistance. Jesus resisted Satan, so did Peter. So did James and so did Paul. The greats of the Bible faced spiritual warfare and resisted the enemy and we have to resist too. Now there was an anonymous quote and I want to remind you of this because people think only weak people and you know, uh, people who've newly saved get attacked by Satan. It's an anonymous quote but it says this, the higher the hill, the stronger the wind, 
So the loftier the life, the stronger the enemy's temptations. You might have been surprised as you watched the news and looked on Instagram and went on YouTube to see prominent people fall into sin. Well, Satan attacks those who are influencers. He attacks those who are prominent. He uses pride. He uses temptations of sex and drink and drugs and money and all sorts of things. And we mustn't think we stand lest we fall. We have to develop an understanding of the word and we have to develop a resistance to the enemy by knowing how he works. And that's what I want to cover today. We're going to look at the classic picture of spiritual warfare in a moment because Jesus faced spiritual warfare. But before I get there, I want to remind you that in the scriptures, in the book of Peter, Peter speaks about resistance. So does James and so does Paul. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. But don't let that intimidate you. He says, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You see, the way to deal with it is not to run. It's not to, to, to become weird. No, it's just to take a stand. In James chapter four, Jesus' brother speaking says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, he won't hang around all the time. And then it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. So to resist is to, is to take a stand and not to move back and not to let him invade or occupy your life. Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter six says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the devil has power, but we have mighty power. And then he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. In other words, you can resist against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the devil has power, he has strategies, but we've got God's mighty power and we've got God's strategy for over coming him and uh, you know one of his strategies is to tempt us and so on another one is just to lull us to sleep he doesn't exist we don't have to worry you know there's no real such real thing such as sin or temptation and it was Martin Luther who said this he said the devil's strategy is not to martyr the saints but to get them to fall asleep it's time we woke up and realized we're in a war we need to know what to do and we need to be in, in victory and we need to resist him or he'll occupy our lives. Now Jesus faced spiritual warfare and we're going to read a passage in the moment. He resisted Satan when Satan came at the beginning of his ministry when he made a resolve to serve God. The enemy came into his life and Jesus resisted Satan. He didn't give in to him. The, the enemy came with temptations that he comes to us with. And I want us to look at the classic passage from Luke's gospel on spiritual warfare where Satan attacks Jesus. Jesus has just declared himself in Luke's gospel as Messiah. He knows who he is. He knows why he is. He knows what he's been called to do. And then the enemy comes to attack him. Now I want you to notice the enemy can only do it by permission of God. So Luke chapter four and verse one, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to be weak or empty to be tempted or attacked. You can be filled to the brim. And it says, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. God uses the devil because it's God's devil in order to develop us. And uh, Satan can't do anything without God's permission, but it's up to us to resist. And it says he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. It goes on to say the devil said to him, if you are 
the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread? Jesus answered, it is written. He counters him with the word of God. Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and let him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are again, he says, the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now the devil's using the scriptures. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully and they will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, using different wording, but meaning it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16 here. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, I love this, he left him until an opportune time. The devil does not live in your house. The devil is not your mother-in-law or your wife or your husband. The devil comes and goes by God's permission and by God's use. And the way we deal with him primarily is to resist him. Now quickly, three things here that Satan attacked before we look at the way he works. He, he attacks firstly identity and that's why he asked Jesus if you are. And if you're a Christian today, he will constantly come to you and attack your identity. Are you really saved? How come you still do this? How come you said that? How come you had those thoughts? And so he will attack us in the area of weakness and cast doubt on our identity. And that's what he did with Jesus and he misuses the scriptures in order to do it. And uh, number two, Satan attacks the mind. He comes and he creates pictures in the mind. The Bible says he led Jesus to a high mountain. He took him to Jerusalem. I think that it's pictures that get created in the mind, especially when you're fasting for 40 days. And there's kind of like, a, like a, an impression. He puts ideas in our minds. And uh, he reasons with Jesus by presenting ideas and presenting the reward being greater than it actually is. You know, I'll give you all this. Look at the, look at the instant rewards. And so he puts ideas and he twists the scriptures, because Satan knows the scriptures. That's why we have to know the scriptures. The great watchman, the author, said this. He said, should anyone allow his head to cease thinking, searching, and deciding, and to no longer check his experience and action against the Bible, he is practically inviting Satan to invade his mind and deceive him. So we constantly got to guard our thoughts, because Satan will come and he will attack our identity, he will attack our minds. But thirdly, Satan attacks the flesh. And he did that with Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. In other words, satisfy a legitimate appetite because if you don't, you're going to die. And Satan does that repeatedly to people. He offers us an opportunity to satisfy legitimate God-given desires, but he tells us to do it at the wrong time. You see, God has given you an appetite for food, but if you're fasting and you're seeking him, that's not the time to give in and eat. It's the time to seek God. God has given us the God-given appetite of sex. But God says, no, you don't just satisfy it anytime you feel like it. You satisfy it inside a marriage, inside a permanent relationship between a man and a woman. So God gives appetites, but there's a place for them to be satisfied. Satan says you'll die if you don't satisfy them and you're missing out. And he creates the impression that God is a fun spoiler and that God wants to wreck your natural desires, which everybody has and so that's how he tempted Jesus. Identity, the mind, and 
the flesh. And we need to realize that life isn't just about pleasure and satisfaction. It is firstly about the will of God. That's why we are on the planet. We belong to God. We are his. And the will of God should be primary. Notice this verse in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. It encapsulates a lot of what we need to focus on today. It says, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Satisfy that appetite. A craving for everything we see, so we become obsessed with material things. Is that wrong to be ambitious or to want to aspire? No, but a craving is where you become obsessed with getting and you commit crime, fraud, there's greed. And then he says, and pride in our achievements and possessions. They are not from the Father, but they are from this world. So the devil comes to tempt us with these three as and he did it with Jesus. Pride, prestige, I'll give you all these kingdoms, satisfy your desires, and he works in the same way. Now what I want to do is I want to look at the way the devil works with the Christian, because he has a strategy with the Christian, and he almost has an identical strategy with the unbeliever. And at the end, we'll look at a table that compares them together. But let's first look at Satan's tactics that he uses. And it's important to know the tactics of the enemy. Corrie ten Boom, the wonderful Dutch lady who hid Jews during the Second World War, said this. She said, the first step on the way to victory is to recognize the enemy. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says that in order Satan might not outwit us, because we are not unaware of his schemes. So we must know how the devil works. We must be aware of his schemes because the Christian is warred against and the Christian needs to know, ah, this is how it's working. I need to take a stand. Otherwise, no matter who you are, whether you're in ministry or not, you will fall and will fail. So, number one, the first thing Satan does, and he did it to Jesus, is to tempt us to misinterpret or neglect the word. Jesus was, 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 was tempted to misinterpret scripture. The devil quoted scripture. And so we really need to know the Bible and we mustn't neglect it or misinterpret it. So many people know it vaguely or they feel there's so much of it that's irrelevant. But the word of God is very important today. And, uh, and, and this is what I hear Christians saying. Jesus never said anything about Yes, because Jesus was a Jew and a lot of what he would have taught the Jews would have understood from the Old Testament as basic, like sexuality, like adultery, like certain behavior, certain mannerism, tithing. It was all in the Old Testament. It was part of their culture. So to say Jesus never said is to try and extract or twist the Bible to suit one's lifestyle. And the devil used scripture, and we must remember that. Even William Shakespeare acknowledged it. He said the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. So we need to know it correctly. We need to know it well so that we can use it to resist him when he puts ideas in our heads. Number two, the second thing he does to the believer is he tries to get us to worship success and the material only. He wanted Jesus at the beginning of his ministry to worship him, and success and things and fame and fortune. And uh, we need to recognize as Christians that God blesses us, but our, the object of our life is not material things. The object of our life is not our comfort and our blessing and the best of everything. That's not the goal. The goal is the will of God. And if we compromise to get the other things, that's when Satan gets his hold on us. And bear in mind, he showed Jesus everything and he told him, take it. it was, he was on the brink of it but he knew the word and he knew God's purpose 
and he knew God's calling over his life. You know, the great C.S. Lewis framed it very well. He framed this whole thing in the picture of a chess game. And he said this, he said, like a good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. In other words, the things, your home, your possessions, you can save them, but you'll lose the bishop, Jesus, the bishop of your soul. And he keeps trying to maneuver you so that you get trapped by things. Number three, the third way the devil works with the Christian is through condemnation. He constantly works to make us feel that we're never good enough. Guilt, fear, doubt. If you are, he said to Jesus, the son of God, and he will constantly come and condemn us. If you're a Christian, then why do you think like that? If you're a Christian, how could you say that? If you're a Christian, how could you drive like that? If you're a Christian, how could you think that? How could you look at so-and-so in that way? And he will constantly bring guilt and condemnation. And you know what happens? We stop praying. We stop going to God because we feel ashamed or we feel condemned. And that's how he cuts our relationship with God off. And so we've got to resist condemnation. And we've got to go to God in prayer. Kevin DeYoung, wonderful author, has written some wonderful books on grace. And he says this, he says, the mystery of the Christian life is that Christ expects us to flee sin and the devil, but does not expect us to rid ourselves of either on this side of glory. So we will always deal with sin and we'll always deal with the devil. He says, repentance is a way of life. And so is the pursuit of godliness. I wish every Christian could be reminded of these two things. So grace doesn't just say it's okay, never feel guilty. But grace says when you feel guilty, remember grace not only forgives, grace empowers and God is busy working on you. That's why you feel that conviction and that sensitivity. But Satan wants you condemned so that you withdraw from God. Number four, the fourth thing the enemy does is he wants us to be self-righteous. He will constantly tell us we are not as bad as, and we'll compare ourselves to people in the church, other churches, other belief systems, and uh, we become full of pride because that's the primary way the devil works. He, he, he makes you feel, man, you've been a Christian a long time. You know a lot about the Bible. You've got a lot of followers on Instagram. You've got a lot of people who respect you. You're a connect group leader. You're a, you're a department head. You're a, you're a key volunteer. You're a staff member. You're a pastor, man. And he will puff you up with self-righteousness so you stop relying on God. You stop working on your life and allowing God to grow you and, and keep yourself in a place of purity and confession. And that's the way he lulls us to sleep. Brant Hansen has written a fantastic book and I've been recommending as many people as possible read it and it's called The Truth About Us. Wonderful author and he says we all have what's called the at least I don't delusion. You know, we, we have this delusion, at least I don't. You know, so-and-so does, but at least I don't. At least I don't park in a disabled spot. At least I don't drive like a maniac. Yeah, until you're in a hurry. Then suddenly you justify yourself. And he says, we have this delusion that we're not like other people. And he says, to quote him here, he says, in fact, the impression I get from Jesus is that the battle against our own self-righteousness is the biggest battle of all. We struggle because we feel, you know, and, and, and religious people become self-righteous. Jesus himself, even in speaking about this, speaks about the danger of self-righteousness. And the devil will do it. He either gets you condemned or he gets you full of, himself, of yourself like he's full of himself. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus told this parable. And I think it's extremely important today, church, for us to bear this in mind. 
He says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Now, none of us would admit it, but secretly most human beings do this. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's an inherent weakness in us and it's a sinful side of our nature. And he says, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two extremes. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, comparisons. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, and I even give to miracle offering. Doesn't say that. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus went on to say, who went away justified? Not the Pharisee, but the tax collector. In other words, when you think too much of yourself, when you think you're perfect, when you're doing all the things you should, even then the enemy will come and trap you because then you stop working on your life and you become self-deceived and you can fall into sin. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, said this. He said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. And so self-righteousness, even though we're walking with God and we're doing really well, maybe we're in victory at the moment, the enemy will come and try and trap us there. We need to realize it's by grace and by God's goodness that we are sustained. Number five, the fifth way that the devil works in the life of a Christian, he gets us to excuse sin because of grace. This is becoming a massive problem in the Christian world where we are only hearing or teaching on the love of God. And people say, well, people are so condemned and they're feeling so guilty and they don't know they're standing in Christ. Now, I know that we're all weak and we're broken and we're sinners and we can never be perfect and never justify ourselves. But whenever you become theologically imbalanced, it usually is because behind it, Satan is trying to twist the scriptures. Remember, he quoted scripture to, G to Jesus, but he quoted it out of context so that Jesus would follow it and the end of it would be destruction. So what are we reading that's imbalanced? Because everything needs to be taken in a balance. Now, not faith and unbelief, but there's a balance of doctrines. Three verses make a picture and you can paint a picture in scripture that's not accurate. And people say, well, God loves you. Yes, we know God loves us and he loves us dearly and unconditionally. But the challenge is this, is if you only preach the love of God, you're speaking about an imbalanced Christian family. Imagine a house in which the parents only tell their children, we love you, we love you, we love you. When the kids sin and are disobedient and fail and are rebellious, we love you, we love you, we love you. No, parents expect maturity. They expect their children to rise up, obey the household, obey the values of the household and grow as people. So to constantly teach and tell them they're okay is to build immaturity into them and to cater to the devil's whims. People need to be called up to obedience, called up to holiness, and we're in a spiritual war. We need to acknowledge that this is the one, one of the most subtle ways that Satan actually works in the life of a person. Bear in mind that when we come to certain verses, we've got to ask ourselves, who's writing this? And when you think of Jesus' brother James, he would have been close to Jesus, he would have understand the heart of God from his own brother, and in writing to us in James, he says tough things like this. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God 
and he will come near to you. But look what he says then in context of satanic uh, attack and, and satanic uh, strategy. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. No one's preaching on this as far as I can see. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Paul writing to the church adds, and he says in Hebrews chapter 12, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so there's the, the, there is a position in God where we're forgiven and we, we are sons and daughters, but then we have to grow in the family of God and Satan will tell us, no, it's okay. No matter what you do, how disobedient you are, no matter what sin you commit, God will use you, God loves you, and you're okay. That is actually not correct because it builds immaturity and ultimately carnal Christians. We've got to resist this lie of the enemy. Number six, I hope this is helping you today and I hope you're understanding how the enemy can work in the life of a believer. Number six, the enemy tempts us to be double-minded. Will God, won't God? Can I trust God? Doubt, unbelief, unanswered prayer. How come my relative died of COVID? How come when I prayed, so-and-so went to be with the Lord? How come God doesn't heal cancer and then he does in other people? What am I not doing? And so we become double-minded about the things of God. And if Satan can create a double mind, he can stop us moving forward because doubt leads to unbelief and then we're no longer trusting God and growing in him. I wonder today if you're building your faith through the word or if you're allowing a double mind to rule you because Satan works in the Christian and in the unbeliever in this way. Number seven, and the last one here for the Christian is Satan tempts us to satisfy our flesh. He tempts us to satisfy our flesh. And you know what people tell me? They say, well, you know, in the Bible, David was a man after God's own heart and he took Bathsheba and then he went to God and he asked forgiveness and God gave him another chance and he was still king of Israel. And so we use the Bible to justify satisfying our lusts, our lifestyle, to satisfying our natural urges and appetites because they are after all natural when in fact the Bible tells us we need to die to self, we need to deny ourselves, that we're crucified with Christ, and in order to live a righteous life, there's a certain tension, because if Satan can win over the flesh, he can occupy your life, and you are a defeated Christian. Even when it comes to things like drugs and alcohol, He'll offer you an alternative way to soothe your soul. Just have one. You know, you need this. And you know, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible anything about marijuana or cocaine. So you know, if it helps you, and he will lie to you to get you to satisfy desires and urges, which eventually you become a slave, you become addicted, and then that addiction rules your life, and, and, and the addiction becomes an idol in your life, and you're not relying on God, you're relying on yourself. Erwin Litzer wrote a very good book, and uh, it's called The Seven Snares of the Enemy. And he talks about giving into things and giving into drugs, actually. And he says here, we must be in a constant state of alert, for the enemy within is in cahoots with the enemy without. We have an innate desire to avoid pain and live a life of happiness. Addiction knows no boundaries of class, gender, or vocation. Millions of men are addicted, so are millions of women and teenagers. Members of the clergy, doctors, attorneys, and accountants have chemical dependency. And so our flesh is constantly being tempted 
to eat too much, to drink too much, to use drugs, and to satisfy those appetites. But God says, no, I've given you appetites, but they need to be ruled over. You need to resist the devil. Now, I want to take a moment here, and not a moment, but a couple of minutes, to contrast, and then we'll look at a table, because it's interesting to see that Satan actually works similarly in the life of an unbeliever to the life of a believer. There are a couple of differences, but there are a couple of similarities. Number one, the first thing the devil does when he wars against an unbeliever, he gets us to doubt God's word. You see, for the Christian, you neglect God's word, you, 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 you don't, or, you, or you distort God's word, but the, the, the devil tells the, non, the non-believer, you know what, God's word is fairy tales, it's old-fashioned. A whole lot of different people wrote it, and they all contradict each other, and uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's restrictive, and it, it'll make you miserable if you follow it, and it'll limit your fun, and you know, life's for living. And so Satan brings doubt to God's word, and uh, Most people today, if you talk to them who don't know God, don't know the Bible and don't think the Bible is relevant because Satan is warring on them through media, through philosophy, through alternatives. He's warring on the unbeliever so that he doesn't even approach God and doesn't know the truth about God. The second thing is he wars against the unbeliever to be self-righteous. Isn't that interesting? The Christian is warred against to be righteous, but the unbeliever is told this, you don't need God, you're not as bad as And so unbelievers will constantly compare themselves, like the Pharisee did, to robbers and thieves and, you know, to people who really do bad stuff. You know, I'm not a serial killer, you know, and I'm I'm not like the guy who went into a shop and shot a whole lot of people or went into a school and killed people. And, you know, I'm not like the guy in KwaZulu-Natal who killed all those women. So we compare ourselves, but... but, um, we, we can't ever justify ourselves and we can't try and prove our, that we're better before God. And so Satan will constantly come and tell people this, you're a good person. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to So I'm a good person. You're a good person. Well, the Bible differs with you on that. It's, it's fascinating how the studies that have been done in a magazine called Scientific America. A lady by the name of Cindy May, she's a, a professor of psychology. She said this, she said, most people consider themselves to be morally superior. She said, it's a trait that as human beings, we all think more of ourselves than others. Maybe that, that is why people are so self-righteous on social media and attack others. Isn't that the truth? People come across as better than. In fact, in the Daily Mail, there was an article written by Sarah Griffiths, and uh, she did a survey with a number of people of 79 British prisoners, and this is the conclusion. Prisoners believe they have better morals than people on the outside. And the article goes on to say that prisoners believe themselves to have more pro-social characteristics, such as kindness, morality, self-control, and generosity than non-prisoners. I'm good enough. I'm not as bad as. And we all think of ourselves as better. Uh, At least I don't. And, And this is what people say. I'm a good person. But the Bible tells us we're not. That's why we need salvation. And as long as the devil can get you to think you're a good, decent, middle-class person, he can keep you from Christ. You see, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11, Jesus actually said this. He actually said, we're evil. He said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Even the Apostle Paul, after he became converted, said this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I find this Lord work. Though I want to do good, evil is right there with me. 
And so no one is good. You see, we all think that, you know, we're based, I'm, I'm a good person. Oh, if you think you're a good person, you won't need Jesus to die for your sins. You won't need to receive him as Lord and Savior. And this is a common trait with people, especially expressed on social media. Everyone is more righteous than the next person because they are good people. And so there's virtue signaling and there's self-righteous behavior. I read an interesting article by a feminist by the name of Flavia Zodin. And she identifies the call-out culture, you know, where people call you out on your mistakes and failures, and she explains how it works. She says it goes like this. I say something ignorant. Unbeknown to me, there are now 10 posts in 10 different blogs and social media platforms calling me a bigot and the worst person ever. Each new post trying to outperform the previous one in outrage, in anger, in righteousness. The intent behind it, more often than not, is just to make the one initiating the call out feel good, more righteous, more indignant, a better person. You see, if Satan can get you to believe you're good enough, you're a good person, you'll never need Jesus. And you know what people are saying more and more? It's not about right or wrong. All you need is love. Da, 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 da. The Beatles said that, all you need is love. But they broke up screaming and shouting and couldn't get on with each other. People hold up great sports stars who can work in unity. Shaq and Kobe could have dominated for a decade. Problem was, they couldn't stand each other. So it's not about love and that we're good enough. No, we're not self-righteous. We need the righteousness of God. And as long as you think you're a good person and you're self-righteous, Satan has got you where he wants you because you'll never come to Christ. The third way is to be religious. The unchurched are taught to be religious. In other words, to have a set of beliefs, to have some kind of spirituality, a feeling that, that when you go in the garden or the golf course that you feel close to God. And as long as you've got something like that, you're quite spiritual and it's of your own making because it suits you. And it's not like other people because each to his own. But clearly this is not the way God works. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And he is the way to God the Father and the gift of eternal life. And so we can't concoct and create our own religion because the Bible says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. But if the devil can get you to have your own religion, you'll feel good about yourself. I'm not as bad as. You can be self-righteous and the Bible's a lot of rubbish. I'm an intelligent person. He's got you in his grip. Wait, the fourth way is to excuse your sin as an evolutionary trait. The devil tells people, you know what, you're evolving. You're an adulterer. You need more than one woman. It's evolution. You're needing to propagate your species. So just go out and do what evolution is telling you to do. And so people follow inherent fleshly desires prompted by Satan tempting them to feed those appetites and they blame it on something intelligent like evolution. All the time serving the devil's purposes. But these ideas need to be resisted, stood against, or the enemy will invade your life and occupy your life and rule your life. There's power in resistance. Thomas Adams said this. He said, Satan, like a fisher, baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. You see, what you believe, what you think is right, he will keep feeding that so that you keep taking the bait until you keep falling into the trap, until he's got you hooked, and then you think you're clever on top of it. Number five, this is how he tempts the unbeliever. 
to be double-minded. The Christian to be double-minded, to be unsure, to be in faith and unbelief, but he gets the unbeliever to be double-minded. You never know what truth is. And, and it could be this or it could be that. And, and, and so people in, in the world who don't know Jesus, they are completely confused about their identity, their sexuality, about truth, about politics, about life, about abortion, about all the things that are clear in the Bible. They are, wow, you never know. And you know, who knows? And then one day they believe this, then they read a magazine article, and then they read a blog post, and then someone says this on social media and then there's a new movement and then they go with that and so people go from pillar to post double-minded and this is what James says in chapter 1 verse 8 such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do you see for you to make progress in life you need to be single-minded a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways and they don't progress in their lives and so if he can get you to be double-minded unsure about truth unsure about life unsure about identity he can have you going from pillar to post with whatever influence and never enjoying the stability and identity that God gives and number six to blame God for the work of Satan it's amazing how many non-Christians, when they see Satan at work in this world, because he's the God of this world, they say that's God. In fact, even insurance policies say that when there's a storm, it's an act of God and they don't pay out. But God doesn't cause these things. And the devil goes around on the earth in these last days and causes havoc, disease, that which kills, steals, and destroys, does not come from God. God permits it so that we trust him in the midst of it. But Satan wreaks havoc. And, and it's not God. People say, where's the God of love? He stepped back and he wants us to trust him because this world isn't all there is. And do you remember when Jesus and the disciples were on the boat in the storm and it threatened to engulf the boat? The Bible says Jesus got up and he rebuked the storm. Now, if God had sent the storm, Jesus would not have rebuked the storm because he'd be rebuking his own father. But he rebuked the storm because Satan had caused that storm in order to stop him from reaching a demon-possessed man. And the unchurched will constantly ascribe to God the work of Satan. And as long as we think that, we'll never turn to a loving God and discover him for salvation. And lastly, number seven, to deny hell, to say there's no judgment and no urgency. Satan constantly tells people there's no such thing as hell. That's what you were taught at Sunday school. That's a figment of your imagination. That's your grandmother trying to scare you. And there's going to be no judgment because you're a good person. And you know what? There's, don't go to, there's no hurry. What do you want to get saved for? And he constantly, constantly tells us this. Have fun. Don't feel guilty. Enjoy your life. You're an evolutionary being. You've got a religion. You, you're not as bad as so-and-so. And self-righteousness, and he works. And, and if you look at this table uh, on the screen, you'll see there's a comparison of how Satan uses different strategies for different people, for the saved and the unsaved, but he's working the same way to bring different emphasis because his goal is the same. Occupy, invade, and dominate. And so for the lost and for the saved, we need to resist him and we need to come to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That's what James said and that's exactly what we need to do as Christians and even as non-Christians. I love what uh, John Owen said as I close. He said, Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. Don't worry no hurry, no judgment, no, hell's just a concept. And as a result, he has them in their grip. 
and people don't consider salvation. Today, I want to encourage you as a Christian as we close, make a decision. I'm going to resist the devil. Get into the word. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to understand how he works. He misquotes scripture, so I need to know the Bible correctly. And I'm not going to allow him to invade and dominate my life. They're natural passions that I feel, but they need to fit within the will of God in the framework. Like a car, it doesn't just get driven anywhere. It's driven on a roadway. There's a place where it works best. My life is the same. And if you don't know Jesus today, don't succumb to the enemy's tactics. You're in a spiritual war, and it's for the occupation and destruction of your soul. Don't let it happen. Reject all that and say, I receive Jesus I am a sinner. I need Christ in my life. I have many good qualities, but at heart, I'm a sinner. And there's no ways I could earn righteousness or heaven by my deeds. They're filthy rags. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to continue to trust Jesus. And I'm going to live for Jesus. If today you'd like to invite him into your life, you know what you're doing? You're resisting the enemy. You're saying, Lord, occupy me. Satan, be gone. And we don't talk to the devil but we talk to God, we pray. Prayer is talking to God. So if you'd like to invite Jesus into your life and you say, I'm done with the devil. I'm done with all that stuff. It's destroyed my life. In fact, there's a trail of destruction behind me. Today, Christ is coming in. Then make him Lord and let him be the one who rules your life. Come pray with me today. Pray like this. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, the only righteous one. He came, he lived, and he died for my sins. I receive him, I believe in him, I make him the Lord of my life and I invite him to occupy my life. I resist the devil and I embrace Jesus and I ask you for the gift of salvation and eternal life in Jesus' name, amen. If you pray to prayer like that, it's the beginning of a walk with God and you're shunning Satan and you're saying, God have your way and I'll tell you what, he'll begin to work in you like you cannot imagine. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 